The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Oh boy. Here we go. Charged Jack Wilson, full of energy, who's going to take on Samuel Beckett. Of all the writers in the world, I get the one in whose most famous play, Nothing Happens, and then Nothing Happens Again. Well, something's happening here in the Jack Wilson studio. I'm making plans, trying to get things done. I'm back in the thick of the scramble, my friends, just like those eggs and peppers and onions you throw in the hot sizzling pan. A western omelet of a podcast with some announcements, some Samuel Beckett, our guest and expert on the politics of Samuel Beckett, Nick Ballar, who's getting his PhD in theater and performance studies at the University of Pittsburgh. All that and more today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. Great show today, Sam Beckett. I did. I had a misconception of Mr. Beckett before starting this one. That happens. I took a couple of facts and stitched them together and made some assumptions. I had thought of him as a lonely writer, buried in his own mind, following on the heels of two titans of modernism, Proust and Joyce, knowing how experimental his theater got and his own novels. I assumed he was also kind of a hermit, agonizing over words. I think he had that side to him, but he also had a lot of fascinating activity in his life. We'll sketch out his biography, including his most famous works like Waiting for Godot, in a moment. But first, I wanted to explain myself. Explain my absence. Well, there's no explanation, really. Or it's a simple explanation. I hit a kind of a wall. Been busy at work, busy with the family, busy with too many different creative projects all at once. Somewhere along the way, I started writing again and have two and a half books in a trilogy. And what do you do with those? What do you do with those? Burn them? Or do they just sit and stare at you, demanding all your time and energy? But I have a job, you say. I don't care. (laughs) Tend to us. I have kids. They need me. We don't care. We need you too. But I have this podcast. Takes a good chunk of my time. Don't care. And so I found myself dragging my body around trying to get it all done. And I realized that when I thought of the podcast and the upcoming episodes and the guests and the editing and this, the speaking and everything else, I wasn't getting that usual lift I get when I think of my podcast. And I My eyes feel like they've been dipped in a little cocaine solution. Do you ever feel that way? Like your eyes just get a little dunking and suddenly they're wide awake and rinsed? I wear contact lenses 
By the way, never talk about my appearance on this show, I guess. Why would I? And I don't post pictures. I have some privacy, which you'd never guess by my talking about myself for hundreds and hundreds of hours, I suppose. Except maybe those are all lies. Who knows? <laughs> Think what you want. But in that vacuum of mystery, people fill in their own images of what I look like, which is normal. I would do the same thing if it were someone else. But then they tell me about what they think I look like, which is kind of funny, kind of hilarious. Recently, a listener wrote in to say he thinks I look... Well, (laughs) let me read you the email and let you hear his speculation about my appearance. This is from a listener called Average Joe. Jack, I have been listening to your podcast for several months now. And first off, want to give you a big thank you. Here's my story. Against the statistics, I actually started reading after college. Being naturally better in math and majoring in engineering, books were never a consideration. After college, I found myself bored with the monotony of adulthood and searching for intellectual stimulation. Thank... (laughs) Sorry. Sorry, Everest Joe. Thankfully... I found relief in literature. I have spent the past seven years trying to catch up on all the lost time. Your podcast has been a big help in expanding my literary tastes and strengthening my passion for literature. As someone who has lived most of my life in Brooklyn, I was, of course, upset that NYC was not on your list of literary cities. I know. Oh, we've had some stumbles along the way on this journey, haven't we, listeners? (laughs) Email continues, would love to hear an NYC literature episode. Also, I notice you reference Ulysses a good amount. This being one of my favorite books as well, it would be great to listen to a Ulysses episode. I've heard hours of your voice and can't help but wonder, what do you look like? I can't be the only person wondering this. What do you look like? I try to imagine someone speaking to me. For some reason, I default to something like, Mike Myers in Austin Powers. <laughs> then think, that can't be what he looks like. <laughs> what does he look like? Would be great if you posted a picture on the website so us listeners could stop wondering. Say hi to Mike for me. Also, would be nice to know what that guy looks like. <laughs> Enjoy the episodes you do together, despite his pretension. <laughs> This is such a great email. I would have read this email just for that phrase. Despite his pretension, Mike has a lot of good insight. His obsession with the Magic Mountain inspired me to read it. Please thank him for introducing me to that treasure. An episode on the Magic Mountain or Thomas Mann would be great too. Anyway, it's been a pleasure listening. Looking forward to many more episodes to come. Joe. Well, Joe, you were very close in your guess guesses. Mike looks like Austin Powers. <laughs> Just kidding. Neither of us does, I don't think. But then again, I'm terrified of mirrors. So how would I know? I could be arrogant here and say, oh, I look like Brad Pitt. But if I'm really being honest with myself, I'd have to say I'm more of a George Clooney. Young George Clooney. There you go. My secret is out. You dragged it out of me, Average Joe. Thank you for the email. And yes, 
We should definitely do a Ulysses episode and one on NYC as a literary city. That was ridiculous. Looking back, I think Mike and I were engaged in a game of chicken, seeing who could go the longest without drafting New York as a literary city. And we both won. And the draft itself lost. How did it not make our top 10? Seems a little ridiculous now. Manhattan alone could have made it, and Brooklyn alone could have made it, probably. And yet, combined and given three other boroughs, just for the hell of it, (laughs) Staten Island, whatever that chipped in, they fell out of the top 10. New York City, sorry, Big Apple. You'll have to somehow manage, somehow get by without being in the history of literature's top 10 literary cities. I was in the middle of a story about feeling good about your eyes, feeling wide awake. I have this feeling sometimes when I take out my contacts after brushing my teeth. It's better to do it the other way around, but sometimes I forget. So busy trying not to catch a glimpse of myself in the mirror. I get distracted when I'm at the sink. So I reach for my eyes and I have a little toothpaste dust on them and it zings into my eyes and suddenly I feel like I'm absolutely wide awake and alert and the world is crisp and fresh and brilliant. Everything is brilliant. Colors and sounds and air. Even the air. That's how I used to feel when I think about the podcast. Oh, great. Time to work on that. I get to dig into some literature, see what I think, and share it with other lovers of literature. What could be better? I'd be energized. Well, a few weeks ago, I realized I wasn't getting that excitement. Instead, I would get a kind of tightness in my chest, and I would think, I'm overwhelmed. I'm overwhelmed. I'm too busy. When can I get all this done? When? How? When? How? Maybe I could quit my job. And then I look at my bank account. Think, no, that's not going to happen anytime soon. Patreons are helping to foot the bill, for which I am eternally and extraordinarily grateful. It's probably the nicest thing anyone has ever done for me professionally, and it's right up there personally, too. It's a gift. But it's still... Largely, this podcast, it's still largely a labor of love. And if that labor is giving me a heart attack, (laughs) which is what it felt like, kind of, (laughs) how can I keep going? Something had to give. So I took a few weeks off, time to read, time to reflect, time to keep working on the trilogy to think about the future. A big part of me thinks, let's keep going to episode 200, take our time if we need to, and when we get there, we'll throw a big party with all our friends, see if Margot Livesey will come back. (laughs) Mike, of course, J.K. Rowling and Stephen King have been begging to come on the show. Maybe that's a good time to open things up, let them in. Maybe that'd be a fun way to close things out. Have a party. It's a big part of me thinks that. Smaller part of me says, why plan ahead even that far? Why not just do what feels good? Do what you can, do your best, and make this something you enjoy doing again. So that's where I am in between those two poles. 
And if the content dwindles, I can pause the Patreon accounts so I'm not taking money I don't feel I've earned. If I get tired of ads, I'll turn them off. And we will stay on this journey step by step by step. Step one, which we're taking today, is a good one. Samuel Beckett. We'll sketch out his life and major works, and then we'll do a deep dive into his politics with our guest, Nick Ballar, after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Samuel Beckett was born in April of 1906 in a suburb of Dublin, Ireland. He was a middle-class Protestant, a good student, he eventually studied Romance languages at Trinity College in Dublin. He taught for a while, and then he wound up in Paris, where at age 22, he met James Joyce, the self-exiled Irish writer who was already as large a figure as Shakespeare or Wordsworth might have been in their day. Joyce had published The Dubliners and Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, and of course, Ulysses. He was now known to be working on an even more boundary-breaking work, Finnegan's Wake, the effect on Beckett was profound. Joyce was in his mid-forties then, the height of his powers. There's a rumor that Beckett became his secretary, which isn't quite accurate, apparently, but he did take up a kind of spiritual apprenticeship, immersing himself in Joyce's accomplishments and literary aims and serving as a, as a sort of ambassador to the rest of the world for Joyce. He wrote a book about Proust as well, in these early years for Beckett, we see in these interpretations and appreciation for literature and modernism, but also the stirrings of a creative spirit who would himself soon join his predecessors in the pantheon of modernist authors. Beckett himself is a bit of a bridge figure, maybe the last great modernist, or maybe the first great postmodernist, or maybe labels like this are meaningless when we're talking about geniuses who arise out of their time and are of their time, but are also trying to write something universal and enduring. Joyce, you might say, was formed by Irish politics, 
Prior to the First World War and then the First World War itself, Beckett was still being formed by the period between the two wars and the rise of Nazi Germany and then the Second World War. His greatest works came after, and it's against the background of those atrocities that we have to try to understand him. One theory, the theory I personally subscribe to, is that Joyce and Proust on the one side and the Holocaust and World War II on the other are the two things, the two major influences on Beckett's aesthetic sensibility. I'll ask our expert about this theory in a little bit, but it's basically this. Here's Joyce. He was out there saying that words mattered and words could do anything. They create worlds. We're beholden to language and to words, and it's essential that we find the right words, that we use them the right way, that we can unlock their meaning and their mystery. We can explore humanity that way, and we can forge new consciences and new consciousnesses, we can understand the darkness and the light. And Beckett is out there admiring Joyce at first, and then he's looking at the Holocaust and saying, well, words didn't stop this. Words didn't stop the concentration camps, the subhuman treatment of Jews at the hands of one of the most civilized nations on the planet who suddenly set aside their classical music and their philosophy and their refined sensibility and put their energies into the logistics of filling trains with innocent men and women and children and killing them on a massive scale. Words didn't stop the murder, the genocide, the evil. What if words are not only not all-powerful? What if they have no power? What if they're pointless? What if they're ineffective? What if they can't rise to the task? What if we're left with a great gaping void and language not only can't solve that problem, but highlights it or makes it worse? What then? It's bleak stuff. But maybe the world is a bleak place. Maybe we humans are bleak. Certainly seems that way at times. We are the best and the worst this planet has to offer. Beckett was stabbed in the chest in 1938, speaking of bleakness, he faced his perpetrator in court. The perpetrator was asked why he'd done it, and he said, I don't know, sir. I'm sorry. Beckett declined to press charges. So struck he was he by this man with his well-mannered response, I don't know why I stabbed you. Beckett journeyed through Germany in the 1930s, watching the rise of the Nazis, and he was in Paris as the Nazis invaded. He worked with the resistance and narrowly escaped being caught by the Gestapo, even though his colleagues were. He had to flee Paris, hiding in the countryside and working as a farm laborer until the end of the war. While there, he continued his work with the resistance. Later, he referred to it as Boy Scout stuff. But he was, may have been downplaying it a little bit. Evidence is he was helpful and brave during this period. When the war was over, he started publishing his greatest works. Before the war, he'd written the essays on Joyce and Proust and a collection of short stories called More Pricks Than Kicks. He also wrote a novel called Murphy, 
in a few volumes of poems, some other smatterings here and there, essays, that sort of thing. During the war, he managed to complete a novel, Watt, W-A-T-T, which would eventually be published in 1953. But it was after the war that he flourished creatively. Malloy, Malone Dies, The Unnameable, three works of prose, and his masterpiece, Waiting for Godot. All those were written between 1946 and 1949, his own little baby boom. And they were all published between 1951 and 1953. Godot was first performed in January of 1953. It was an immediate success. It changed his life. It changed all our lives. Beckett became world famous. He was awarded the Nobel Prize in 1969. And Godot became the powerful and dazzling sun that blots out all the other stars in the Beckett firmament. It's easy to read Godot or attend a performance and stop. Beckett himself recognized this, found it curious that Godot was so uh, sensational, so such a sensational success and threatened to overcome everything else he had worked on. It's a worthy play. It's as rich and powerful now as ever, although... It had such a transformative impact and sparked so many changes in the theater and in literature. It's hard to imagine now just how dramatic its impact was in 1953. But Beckett's other works, as difficult as they can sometimes be, are full of his intelligence and humor and insight as well. There's more to Beckett than just Godot. But what was it about Godot? We'll talk about this with our guest, so I don't want to say too much here. It's two human beings who are in the world and don't know exactly what they're there for. What's the purpose? What's the point? They wrestle with this idea and think they must be waiting for someone. Their existence means something must be happening. They must be waiting for someone, but who? They come up with the figure, Godot. But what's the evidence that this person even exists? Godot, we as viewers and Readers might notice from the first three letters, spells God. That might be in there. Suggestion of that. All of literature is about a quest, a hero's journey, a set of objectives that ends in an achievement, a pot of gold, or a spiritual awakening. Beckett puts something different on the line here and elsewhere. What if all that, the pot of gold, the epiphany, what if that's not the goal? What if that's not the journey? What if that's not the point? What if the lack of point is our essential issue for us to grapple with and we don't overcome it? We struggle with it. We don't achieve the epiphany. We're denied it. And literature can't hide that fact. It must reckon with it. After Godot, Beckett continued to strip things down. Fewer words, less description, less staging less scenery. One play was 35 seconds long and had no characters. There's a search here, almost a Descartian project. Reduce theater to its core and see what that core is. Can you build from there? Well, what else can you do? Getting to the most naked, the most bare, the deepest essence. This is where it's easy to get confused about Beckett. One might say he was an absurdist and stop there. Life's absurd, so the theater's absurd too. Full stop. 
Non sequiturs can reveal the truth. So can the fool. We all know that. Funny situations expose the dark reality of meaninglessness. But that's not quite all. There's an engagement with the world, too, with humanity that runs through Beckett. It's not a turning away, a denial. It's a reckoning. So let's bring out our guest who's done some reckoning himself with theater, with performance, and with Samuel Beckett. Nick Ballar, after this. Okay, joining me now is Nick Ballar, a PhD student in theater and performance studies at the University of Pittsburgh. Nick is a specialist in 20th century Irish theater and drama. He joins us today to talk about Samuel Beckett, Beckett's politics, and censorship. Nick Ballar, thank you for joining me today on the History of Literature. Thank you so much for having me, Jack. I have been listening to this podcast uh, for gosh, a year and a half or so. Wow! So it's a uh, it's a privilege to get to join you. Oh, great! So the first thing I want to ask you about is just your studies. You're a PhD student, and for those who might not be familiar with uh, your discipline of theater and performance studies, how would you describe it? What kind of research and scholarship would you be doing, and how would that be different from? say, someone getting a PhD in English literature with a focus on drama? Yeah, so first of all, theater and performance studies are not necessarily and certainly not always a unified field. Mm -hmm. Uh, Theater studies um, sort of has this trajectory born out of its appearance in university programs that were really devoted to training theater practitioners, you know, actors, directors. And uh, drama lit has sort of always been covered in literary programs, but there became this sort of need um, to teach not only the history of drama and its uh, development, but that of uh, the history of acting and performance, the history of directing, Mm. uh, scenography, theater architecture, design. Um, And so theater studies sort of looks broadly at all of these different aspects of theater, not just playwriting. Right. Performance studies, on the other hand, is an even broader field and is a newer one to it that, um, at least formally speaking. Uh, and performance studies expands the purview of theater studies into other, other kinds of events. Uh, performance art, of course, but we're also talking about social performance, the performance of gender, uh, the performance of family roles, sexuality, race, uh, performance of the nation, and so on and so forth. Hmm. And these are not just necessarily bound to the formal aesthetics, but nevertheless, they also have a kind of aesthetic quality of their own. So, for example, I have two colleagues who are writing about performance phenomena outside of theater. One is writing on military parades Mm. and the other is writing on museum exhibitions things Mm. having to do with climate and environmentalism so 
there's sort of this idea of looking at things as a performance right and using um the language of theater and performance of event of ritual in order to better understand these phenomena and how they work what sort of cultural work they do mm. that's interesting i i like that and not just it sounds like it's more than just the idea that you know anything could be a performance or that you know even the even our daily lives could be a performance, but looking at things that that almost uh, people are designing them to be performative in a way. And I'm, I was thinking uh, my son went to a pep rally at school and it kind of brought back for me the high school pep rallies and thinking, uh, you know, I wonder if they've evolved or if they've just kept the traditions that I'm used to. And I think that would be a really interesting thing to look at and, and study. It sounds like that might be a the kind of thing that uh, people might be looking at. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, a pep rally, that alone gets me thinking about ideas of like collective consciousness. Mm. And um, I mean, what are the politics of a pep rally? Yeah. What sort of things are included in that? So that's an exactly ideal kind of site for the sort of things we're interested in. Mm. So what are your areas of specialty? Yeah. So as you said, I, um, I'm a little bit more traditionalist insofar as I am interested in theater history. And I look at Irish theater and drama, mm -hmm. and especially issues um, surrounding censorship, primarily in the 20th century, and even more specifically uh, in mid-20th century Ireland. Mm. Um, and I'm increasingly interested in how Irish theater and drama travels beyond Ireland. So, uh, for instance, Irish performances in England, in the United States, um, and sort of how Irishness travels and what work Irish identity might do in uh, places other than Ireland. Mm. And Beckett is one of those mid-century yeah. figures that is um, <laughs> I'm constantly returning to. He is, he is well-traveled. Extraordinarily. <laughs> and in, the, in, in strange and surprising ways that I just cannot get enough of yeah myself now, would you say that i mean i know he he's he's performed all over the world that waiting for godot is must be one of the most performed plays of of our time would you say that there is i mean it, in some ways it almost seems like it's transcended irishness in a way uh that it's it's so universal it's it's it touched something so deep in the human condition uh that i'm wondering if you would view it as if it falls into the same category as some of the other things you're looking at when it sounds like you're interested in in how specifically irish theater travels yeah so there's plenty of people that uh would not even couch Beckett in terms of yeah. Irish theater. And right? he wrote in French um, a lot of the time. Yeah, he was multilingual. He wrote first in English, of course, but then came after the war, begins writing in French, uh, and then sort of switches back and forth. And he translates himself, mm -hmm. which is an interesting and, and somewhat unique practice, as far as I know in, in literary history, yeah. that Here's a guy who who actually is concerned with the practice of of doing it himself. And what's really surprising about it is that if you read Beckett in French 
and English is that the texts are not nearly as identical as you might think. Mm. Um, there's a lot more slippage between the two. <laughs> and, of course, there's been whole books written about these differences. Yeah. In terms of Beckett in Ireland, it took decades before um, scholars began to seriously sort of interrogate that relationship between, I mean, really the first 30 years or so of his life, which were spent mostly in Ireland, mm -hmm. and then the career that followed, really that followed his leaving it mm. um, to go and live in exile, self-exile, largely in Paris, although he lived in London for a time too. When you look at Godot, do you see it as a an Irish play, and what features lead you to that conclusion? So at one point, I would have said, yes, mm. absolutely, I see uh, Waiting for Godot as a Irish piece. Mm -hmm. That I've, I've sort of refined that for myself a little as I've immersed myself deeper and deeper into the scholarship. And I think Beckett is always multiple, right? Mm. He's never just Irish. He's never just an English language writer. He's not just a writer. He was also a director. Mm. So I think it's valuable to think of Beckett's relationship to Ireland as only part of an equation. Mm -hmm. And if we look at Gatto, yes, there is, um, in the English version, a kind of Hiberno-English dialect to much of it. Mm -hmm. There is, you can identify the landscape as being somewhat Irish in, its, um, in the way it looks, country road, tree, the barrenness, the flatness, mm. um, perhaps hills, depending on how it's designed on the stage. And of course, there are also references. Lucky in his long diatribe that he has um, in the middle of Act One mentions, uh, for example, just off the top of my head, Connemara, which is an island off the west coast of Ireland. So there are these little pockets of things, almost a lot of People think of them as traces of Ireland. The same is true, however, of France and Europe, um, especially in the French version on Attendant Godot, where some of those Irish references or British references are swapped out for French ones. Mm. It's really important, as much as possible, to consider both translations as well as to recognize the potential work that is happening through those references, through the trace. And it's sort of a, a perpetual digging yourself into a hole and trying to figure out what he's doing with these things. And only, usually only ever being partially sure you've got the answer right, I think. Yeah. Let me ask you a question. You might not have the answer to this. This might be a bizarre yeah. question, but I'm going to roll it out there. Yeah, shoot. <laughs> so this is, uh, I'm just, I'm fascinated by the idea of, of Beckett and his relationship with James Joyce. And yeah. he, Joyce was, uh, I think, 24 years older. Beckett knew him. Beckett wrote about him. He helped promote his, uh, what, what what ended up becoming Finnegan's Wake. Yep. and. And Beckett had a, a point in his life where I think he did a, a distinct pivot away from Joyce, uh, even though he, he believed Joyce was a hero and he, he, I don't mean he pivoted away from him as a person, but that he 
pivoted away from him in terms of his own art. And it almost seems like you could summarize it as saying Joyce's works almost asserted that language could do anything and and language could do everything. And that what Beckett said instead was he was going to go in the direction of, well, what if that's not true? What if language can do nothing? What if what if what it can yes. do is is replicate you know, what if we strip it down? And I know he was influenced by Descartes, I read, mm-hmm. where he he wanted to boil things down. He loved the uh the discourse on method where he Descartes tried to get to the barest of principles and build up from that. And and so here's my question. Yes. As Beckett was trying to strip things down and trying to make things more and more economical and and trying to make things more concise and and plainer and and writing in French not because he was better in French but because he was worse and just sort of that uneasy relationship <laughs> he had with language and his his effort to make things as bare as possible do you think that he got to a point where he reached the bareness and thought here's what's left is Ireland and my Irish background, my I, I can't escape the Irishness? Or do you think that his Irishness was something that he was able to scrape away in a sense and say, I can get even below this and find a human being and, and just me? That's a great question. Uh, I think it's a little bit of both yeah. in its own way. I think um, in some ways he was constantly trying to escape Ireland, and yet he could not, he was almost obsessive about yeah. it and his return to it constantly um, mm-hmm. in both his prose and his drama. It appears over and over and over again, even if it's only a trace of it yeah. one way or another. One scholar, James McNaughton, writes about how Beckett is, for McNaughton, very much thinking about how can he use Ireland to stage a kind of political intervention into the project of modernism, mm. where if modernism, you know, one of the ways modernism has been critiqued over and over and over again is that it was not the most politically efficacious project, right? That it sort of strove to change by means of um, psychology, but at a level that that wasn't able to really change anything, mm. And so Beckett, argues McNaughton, is going to use Ireland to to think about if it's perceived as this really rather unmodern place, what does it mean to, to, to give a radical form around a story and set it there mm. in that place, right, to sort of bring those two things into contention. Um, it opens up all sorts of contradictions and weird, weird style, stylistic, aesthetic choices that ultimately have a peculiar kind of politics that are somewhat unique to the period, perhaps. Yeah. So let's talk about his politics, because he, that's one of the issues I understand you're interested in. And he went through, so he was, like I said, 22 or 24 years younger than Joyce. So Joyce, I really associate with kind of the First World War. And Beckett really, really lived through the the Second World War, including 
all of the uh, the run up to the world war in Europe, and and I know he visited Germany and he wrote about it in his diaries and and things like right. that. And he he also was you know right there in the Cold War, and I know he he did some things for Vaclav Havel, and and yes. uh, those were a little more overtly political. But a lot of what he's associated with has always been viewed, I think, as apolitical, that it was the theater of the absurd or the literature of exhaustion or things that seemed like they weren't political. And it sounds like what you've been discovering, you and, and other scholars, is that there's a, a richer interpretation here that would consider Beckett in, in the context of the politics of his day. So how has that played out? What have you... What have you been studying and what have you found? Yeah, so you're exactly right in the kind of um, critical trajectory that you've traced, where by and large, and certainly in the popular sphere, in the public sphere, he's recognized as sort of this uh, apolitical, avant-garde, existentialist or um, absurdist, right, where Martin Esselin comes along in the 60s and writes this book, The Theater of the Absurd. And really what Eslin is doing in that book is trying to sort of see patterns across these disparate playwrights like Beckett, like Eugenie Inesco, like Jean Genet. And he sees in them this Sisyphusian quality where meaning is constantly being pushed towards but is never attained. What's important to recognize is that in my reading of the historiography, Eslin nevertheless is still situating them historically as particularly post-war writers. Mm, right. And that's a fact that's often overlooked, right? Um, that there is something about the experience of um, the Second World War mm-hmm. that enables these kinds of plays to happen in the first place. Yeah, that they're all sort of historically conditioned. And I, I wonder, just to tie it back in real quickly with Joyce, I've I've wondered if part of the reason why Beckett was turning away and saying, you know, language can't do everything is is as a response to things like the Holocaust and to say, you know, where did where did the great Joycean style get us? How, like it it, yes. it would have been powerless to stop something like that and and then as a reaction to say well maybe maybe what language should do instead or or maybe all it can do instead is reflect the meaninglessness or the the absurdity and yet somehow we we continue and somehow we go on but we can't look for meaning in language or anywhere else you're absolutely right about how Beckett sees Joyce working towards this sort of language can do everything. In fact, he writes about this. There's a famous letter in Beckett studies that's cited over and over and over again, where he is unusually clear about <laughs> what he thinks he's going to be doing. Yeah. And interestingly enough, he writes it while he's touring Nazi Germany in 1937. Mm. So pre-Holocaust, but still nevertheless fixated on questions of language and representation even before the real atrocity has taken place. Mm. I mean, I've got a quote here that might be helpful. Um, He writes in this letter, quote, in my opinion, 
the most recent work of Joyce, which was Finnegan's Wake, had nothing at all to do with such a program that is the stripping back uh, that you're describing. There, it seems to be much more a matter of apotheosis of the word. Unless ascent into heaven and descent into hell are one and the same, how nice it would be to be able to believe that in fact it were so. Mm. For the moment, however, we will have to limit ourselves to the intention. So he's thinking about, as he's traveling through Nazi Germany of all places, why hasn't literature reached the point that music and painting have mm. where they're able to sort of strip back? He writes about um, how even Beethoven, a hundred years earlier, was able to use these what he calls huge black pauses so that for pages on end we cannot perceive it as other than a dizzying path of sounds connecting unfathomable chasms of silence. Mm. That is Beckett's project, right? Yeah. Okay, let's take a quick break and we'll come back with more with our guest, Nick Ballar. So I know that he he was sort of a cold warrior in the sense that he was doing things to try to help Vaclav Havel and he was on the side of of freedom for the artist and that kind of thing but were there other specific political positions he was taking was he was he in the fray was he deep in the weeds or are we talking about politics in more of a broad strokes sense both so we know a, we know more than we might think that we know about the sort of positions he took, and especially things from his life in Ireland. So we can sort of start there. Mm -hmm. You know, when he's a young boy, he and his father are walking in the hills above Dublin, and they see smoke rising from the city. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that what they're witnessing is the bombardment, uh, the British bombardment of Dublin during the 1916 Easter Rising. Mm. So, from a very young age, he becomes extremely aware of his position as a colonized subject. Right. As someone who's living in a colonial state for all intents and purposes. Mm -hmm. His parents send him off to a school when he's a little older, and he's on the North Irish side of the border when partition goes into effect. And so, here's another instance where now he's actually crossing back and forth between two countries to go to school. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so then he attends Trinity College Dublin, and his whole life he's lived, lived as sort of a comfortable Anglo-Irish Protestant. But mm -hmm. when he moves to Dublin and he's attending school, this is where the, for the first time he sees and learns about economic cruelty, you mm -hmm. know, and, and what people have to struggle through life to feed themselves. He's seeing um, that in the streets of Dublin? He's seeing this in the streets of Dublin, right? and he actually cites it as part of the reason why he, he um, loses or at least begins to question his faith, because mm. he can't understand how this could be allowed, right? right? And how he has sort of gr grown up, yes, in a colonized state, but also in a position of privilege within that particular society in a way that I think is quite palpable 
And we see throughout his text, you know, this sort of idea of starvation and of struggle and of dirt and homelessness. Um, So many of his characters live without place, seemingly, Mm -hmm. right? Like um, Didi and Gogo and Waiting for Gatto are these kind of tramps for all intents and purposes. Yeah. Then he moves, he eventually moves to London and he's undergoing psychotherapy there. And and that for him is quite beneficial, but he comes to hate it because things happen to him. Like he gets into a taxi and the drivers call him Patty and Mick. And again, it's a reminder that he is othered. Yeah. That right. he doesn't belong. And so he leaves London, goes to Paris, goes to Germany for a while. Here's an interesting tidbit. There's a period where he wants to go study film and to learn how to be a filmmaker. But the place he wants to go to is Soviet Moscow. Oh. And to learn from filmmaker um, Sergei Einstein. Right. Yeah. Right? Uh, and he doesn't, uh, he doesn't go, obviously. Eisenstein, yes, Eisenstein, I'm sorry. Right. And obviously he doesn't go, but he's interested and he sends a letter to, to you know, he tries to get in. <laughs> right. Uh, and then he goes to Nazi Germany, and he hears Hitler giving speeches. He hears Goebbels giving speeches. He has to. He, he's going in no small part to visit German art galleries. Right. He was sort of interested in um, finding, learning more about German art, and he catalogs them meticulously in his diaries that he keeps. But he also has to go into the basements to see some of the art because it's been hidden away by the regime. All of this is to say, even before we get to what we think of as the mature work of the trilogy novels and Godot and Endgame, we get a picture of a sort of anti-imperialist, anti-nationalist artist who also is increasingly aware of propaganda, of how history gets spun towards political ends. Yeah the repetition of political slogans. When the civil war in Spain breaks out, there's a petition that goes around and he signs it with the phrase up the Republic, one word upside down exclamation point and regular uh, English exclamation point on either side of this word Mm. up, up the Republic was an Irish nationalist rallying cry. And he sort of, um, makes it Spanish here, but one can't help but read into that a kind of ironic twist Mm -hmm. that there is something incredibly disappointed in him having to use this phrase again when he himself is so disappointed in the Irish state, which he is. He's he's incredibly disturbed by its arch-conservatism, with its turn to sort of an arch-Catholicism, that it loses its potential feminist streak, that the socialist movement that had been a part of the revolution, the Irish Revolution, sort of comes to nothing. And here he is twisting that phrase, perhaps in a parodic or satiric way, and putting it in this petition of support for the Spanish cause. Hmm. So why, I mean, was it just his good artistic judgment? Why do you think he was not then writing plays that, frankly, probably would not have stood the test of time 
uh, you know, why did he not write plays with characters who were freedom fighters or, you know, immersed in the politics of their day? Was it just an artistic decision where he realized that that would be ephemeral and, and overly polemical? Or do you think he was trying to avoid it or trying to escape in some sense and and trying to maybe comment on on the futility of those kinds of struggles? I mean, this is the debate. Oh, okay. Right. This is this is this is a big part of what we're all talking about and what we've been sort of talking about in the field for the past ten years or so. Yeah. Um and so, me only recently, obviously. Yeah. But um, so I'm a little late to the party. Well, it, it's 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 unfortunately still fairly insular, and I think we're making strides towards changing the sort of way in which we understand him and his work. Mm-hmm. But it's hard, be- exactly because of this issue. It's not like yeah. it's not like Brecht, where we can point to Brecht and say, "Oh, this is so clearly and obviously doing Marxist work." Mm-hmm. Right, <laughs> right, right. In the essay he wrote about Joyce, it begins with the phrase, "The danger is in the neatness of identifications." Mm. And even though he's writing about Joyce, a lot of us take that as sort of him also talking about himself and, and yeah. where he sees himself going, because you can't just say that Gatto is a clear historical allegory for the Holocaust, for colonialism, for Ireland, for France, for anything, because it's always multiple, like I was saying before. It's right. always involved so many things. For my money, I think the, the readings that excite me the most and that sort of ring the truest where they ask the question, how can I, after the Holocaust, after the atrocity of imperialism, respond to history without doing that historical thing, mm. that project that has to appropriate and that has to spin history, that has to respond to it in these sort of old, tired, moldy, crusty ways. Right. How do you speak to the horror of the Holocaust? Well, maybe the answer is that you don't do it directly, that you find some sort of expressive form to give word to that silence. Right. To express the psychic wound of Irish colonialism, of the absent voices screaming in the dark. Yeah. And for Beckett, he can never get there. Mm. He can never make the silence happen completely. Right, it's an impossible project, but one that he's constantly moving towards, and also changing the ways in which he does it. Right, like his later plays are wildly different from *Waiting for Godot*, from *Eleutheria*, from *Happy Days*. Mm. They are one shorter, sure, but they're often set in the darkness, mm. where there is not even a country road and a tree; it's just black. Right, with a spotlight where sometimes even the form of theater itself becomes the means of telling the story, where we become aware that the lights are operating sort of like characters. Uh, I'm thinking of play in particular, the one where there's three heads sticking out of three giant urns, and they're prompted to speak by a light that shines on them. But sometimes the light points on a head and it can't speak or it doesn't speak. 
and were made aware of the fallibility of the mechanism and also the power dynamic that's at, that seems to be at play between the characters and the mechanism. And that is itself a kind of politics, right? And all of this is, is maybe stemming from a feeling that addressing something like the Holocaust, taking it on directly and, you know, assigning blame or, or setting, setting characters up to be advocates for and against and, and, and basically doing things in a more traditional, conventional way that, you, as you've suggested, would be maybe creaky and, and outworn, that that would just be insufficient and that it was he just had to find some way that could uh, express what he was viewing as the ambiguity or the basically the difficulty of even trying to approach these subjects. And this is what he was finding. Yes, uh, that that's essentially the reading of his work in broad strokes that I agree with, that I mm-hmm. uh, see and that several others um, that I work with and talk to see. Um, we might take Endgame as an example. Okay. Yeah, in Endgame, there's this, this strange moment where the character Ham is telling this story about this man who comes to him and he's starving and he has a child who's starving. And Ham asks him about the situation at Cove. K-O-V. Well, Beckett historians have discovered that this is a homophone of a port town in Ireland also called Cove, but spelled C-O-B-H, an Mm -hmm. Irish spelling. At the time... Uh, or at least for a time, Cove was one of the most important ports on the island. And so in this single reference within the story of the starving family, there's gestures towards things like the Irish potato famine, the potato blight, um, the history of colonization Mm. that that entails, the history of Irish emigration. And it's also the port from which Beckett sailed when he went from Ireland to Hamburg to visit Nazi Germany. And so it's laden with personal memories, with historical memories that, of course, you, you, in just listening to it, aren't necessarily going to be able to tap into. But he is tapping into it, and it therefore has some kind of political significance. Right. And it's only ever toward, right? Only ever an approach toward referentiality. And at least once we get to the post-war works, Beckett is negating these things. That he wasn't trying to to load things with references that way. He was trying to strip them away. Strip away. Mm. And it entails, uh, like I was saying before, this the silence becomes an impossible silence that nevertheless entails a different approach toward an ethical responsibility to history and to politics. And Endgame, in that moment, and generally speaking, as a play is kind of negotiating a, a, a delicate balance between silence and testimony with an eye towards these catastrophes. There's the sense in Endgame that just the world has collapsed, but we can't really call it post-apocalyptic, right? That doesn't seem quite right. It's something else. It's historical trauma rendered expressionistically, mm. for lack of a better word. Yeah. It's the abyss. Ugh. So 
Okay, so let's move into the next subject. I think this might flow out of this one, which is you've been doing research on the censorship of Beckett. And, and one might think, given what we've just heard about Beckett, that there wouldn't be anybody to censor him. You know, that like, what would they right. find <laughs> objectionable? Uh, it makes it, the way we've described it, it makes it seem like, well, politics has disappeared from these works because they're so stripped away and they're so expressionistically addressing these topics. But uh, right. but he was censored. So who was censoring him and why? Yeah. So first it happens in Ireland where he's first published hmm. and where he's publishing. Uh, his first run-in with censorship is for his short story collection oh, more pricks yeah. called <laughs> more Pri more pricks than kicks which is right. a great title and this is still <laughs> he's still kind of writing in the joycean vein here yeah i mean he's never wholeheartedly joycean it's it's sort of joyce with a twist is the way i read it first mm -hmm. it's in ireland and they have in ireland at the time an act that was in place called the censorship of publication act that was passed in 1929 and it mm. gave the government broad authority to censor virtually any printed matter whatsoever. Not just fiction, novels, poetry, but also advertisements, newspapers, postcards, you name it. Uh, if it was deemed obscene, if it could be seen as obscene, it could fall under censorship rules. Right. And more pricks than kicks is certainly um, potentially falls it, under that it was camp. Yeah. Body. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Okay. Uh, much later, he publishes. Uh, well, not much later. He publishes Murphy, and it is something like fifteen years or so before it manages to be banned. But it also manages to be banned, along with his novels Watt and Malloy. Uh, those both mm -hmm. in the fifties. And he responds to censorship almost immediately. Before he was banned, he begins working on this essay that was a commission uh, for a journal where he was basically talking about Irish censorship, and he calls it Censorship in the Sourstat. And it's a short little essay, really interesting piece. Uh, and what he picks up on is that censorship in Ireland is tied to morality, obviously, but it's specifically tied to a kind of sexual morality, where mm. they have banned specifically things having anything that has to do with contraception and abortion, anything that might advertise it, anything that might give information about it, they're banned, of course, because those are Catholic positions. Mm -hmm. And he connects this in this essay to the creative censorship that is also taking place. Then as he's writing this essay, he himself gets banned. And so he goes back and revises it, and he adds his own registration number to the very end of the essay. <laughs> right. And so it's this idea that censorship in Ireland not only regulates culture, but it regulates Irish life. It's what we call biopolitical, mm. right? It's controlling bodies. It's all a part of the same project. Uh, yeah. And this, for me, in my reading of Beckett, becomes sort of a starting place for thinking about 
the significance of censorship, that it's not just about stifling free expression, but it's about stifling life and controlling life mm. in ways that are, uh, for him, and I think for a good many other people, rather disturbing, right? We're talking about a regime right. that is is not giving people agency over their bodies. Mm -hmm. uh, and what a powerful metaphor that can become for someone who's already thinking about abstract art and the kind of work it can do for a culture. Right. And someone who's, you know, if you're coming through something like World War II and you see these totalitarian regimes and you obviously uh, he was clear sighted enough that he wasn't trying to equate the Irish or the English with Nazi Germany, but he was probably looking at it and saying, well, it's not as if it's not as if these are the pure good guys either. Right. There's still this authoritarian streak. There's still a an attempt to keep people down and to limit their freedoms. And and just because Nazi Germany has been defeated doesn't mean that we are now living in a, a paradise right. of freedom. And, and we might look actually at post-war France as another one of those sites. So he is mm. not himself censored by the French government. But his publisher was. Uh, during the mm. Algerian War for Indepen Independence, which is from, I think, 1954 to 62, uh, France institutes really, really strict censorship, pretty much across the board, across all mediums. They don't want people mm. um, talking, giving opinion about this war, about even calling it a war, because it wasn't technically a war. It was a conflict. And it was seen as an internal conflict. And if they called it a war, that might invite external actors to get involved. And France is desperately trying to keep Algerian, Algeria French. And Beckett's publisher, his French publisher, whose name was Jérôme Lindon, and his firm was called Les Editions des Menuis. I apologize. My French dialect is uh, terrible. <laughs> it always has been. Um <laughs> But that, that publisher produced roughly one-third of the books the French government seized during the Algerian War mm. of Independence. And so right. during this episode, the situation got so intense that a counter-revolutionary group, a group that was against the policies that de Gaulle was pursuing in Algeria, well, they target Lindon's apartment. And this is just two streets from where Beckett himself lived. And they target it with explosives. And a few days mm. after that, a Molotov cocktail crashes through the window of the publishing office. And in fact, the firm only survives, according to Lindon himself, because Beckett lends him money so that he could survive, so that the business could survive, and so that he could keep publishing. Right? So Beckett is, in this instance, economically supporting a kind of political radicalism, really, that is, yeah. of course, not overtly present in his works. But what if we begin thinking about that kind of activism as an undergirding philosophy to his works? Right. And to to layer that, I think I think both Joyce and Beckett kind of get this conception we often have that they were really wrestling with language and that they were engaged in this kind of struggle with meaning and with language. And, and certainly that's there. 
but that there's also this whole layer Joyce had it yeah. as well of of also waging a battle not just against the the tyranny of of language but tyranny one might say of authoritative figures who were uh, oppressing yeah them. and i think i think beckett totally saw language as its own kind of oppressor not only because he was mm. an irishman who didn't know irish who frankly didn't want to learn irish but recognizing that english was not was a, a a language that his native land adopted by means of coercion. Yeah. You've brought up the the hovel piece a few times. Yep. I think that that is another really interesting point here and it it's it's a play that is more mm-hmm. directly political probably than anything else he did. Catastrophe yeah. for catastrophe. And this was the early right, 80s, 82. right? Okay. So how how does that show us where Beckett had gotten to at that point in his life? Yeah, so he's asked to write, to to contribute something to this evening of solidarity. Uh, Vaclav Havel, who was an activist, then an activist in communist Czechoslovakia, was imprisoned. And so Beckett writes this piece. And in this piece, it's a rehearsal. What you're watching is a rehearsal of another performance. And in it... Mm-hmm. A single solitary figure is standing on a platform, and this figure, who's called the protagonist in the play, is completely inert. Um, I've directed this piece, so I, I will speak to it from that perspective, too. You have to get your actor to mm-hmm. not move <laughs> at all. <laughs> it's an incredibly difficult <laughs> task, even for such a short play. The only time yeah. he moves is when the director in the play and the director's assistant make him move. Physically, they grab his body and move it into other positions. They take off his clothes and reveal uh, gray pajamas, basically, underneath. They say they're going to um, do things to his hair and color his skin. He has no agency whatsoever. Mm. At the end of the play, he, the director, that is, the director gets him finally in this really submissive position, and he says, that's it. We've got it in the bag. He'll have them on their feet. And then we hear, as audience members, we hear a sound effect of applause come in. And it's during this moment of imaginary applause that the protagonist moves for the first time of his own choice. And he looks up, and he looks at the audience. And I think the stage direction is... He fixes the audience, which I like to read as not Mm. only fixing his gaze, but actually fixing, changing the audience, Um, staring Mm. them down, making them complicit in what has happened. There's a dynamic there that is just so disturbing when you actually experience it. Um, And this I'm I'm afraid to move in my chair just hearing you talk about it. It's incredible. Um, and when I did it, when, uh, just to brag a little, when I did it, I turned all the lights on so the audience was looking at each other for the oh, first half. And right, then right. at the end, it, they were all yeah. in darkness. And so it went from communal to sort of personal. And it was just so disturbing. And then, of course, at the end of it, the play ends. And because it's the end of a play, the audience is going to applaud, right? Yeah. What if Beckett was actually using that convention 
to make the audience sort of implicitly active in the play. Right. So they're, they're mm. now act, they are now actually applauding. Uh, yeah. His gesture and the entire work. And Beckett dedicates this play to Havel who is in prison. And this right. is at the end of his but, career. Uh, and so we can see from more pricks than kicks yeah. in the thirties <laughs> to catastrophe yeah. at the end of his career, censorship is sprinkled throughout the whole thing and kind of brackets it in a way that's, um, interesting and useful for me. Right. Okay. So let's jump to the present day. This is sort of my last cool. question. How do we view that debate today? Do you think we've moved on from these issues? Do you think they're still with us? Is is Beckett's continuing popularity a sign that we still wrestle with these? Or do you think we're watching Beckett and now is in sort of a... Uh, a nostalgic way or a, a tribute, we, we recognize it as being a Cold War piece or something, or do you think they're still alive and fresh? I think they're still very alive and fresh. And one of the things about performance is that it is always happening now. Yeah, right. right? Theater happens now. It might depict a past or a different place or just a black hole with a mouth in it, <laughs> uh, as Beckett does and not I. But it is happening now, and so it constantly invites us to think about now, mm -hmm. um, even as it might also have us think about history and the relationship between the past and the present. There was a production of Waiting for Godot, I think about a year after Hurricane Katrina, for instance, that took place outside in a found space in an area of the city of New Orleans that was still recovering hmm. and Dee Dee and go and go go were played by black actors pozzo hmm. was a white man there is a powerful politics there yeah where pozzo who prides himself as this lord as this you are so lucky to be of the same species as pozzo kind of character is white yeah and the tramps are black and this is obviously a really kind of um intense political choice but in other ways it sort of highlights what is always already there right. in the text right um so my hope is that we continue to think about beckett because there's still so many questions right um and there's so many questions especially about the performative possibilities of his politics that remain to be answered our job is to keep asking them i think Mm. Well, let's leave things there. That's beautiful. Nick Villar, thank you so much for joining me today on the History of Literature. Jack, thank you so much. Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. I'm so glad you could join me today. My thanks to Nick Villar for helping us out with Samuel Beckett. Go read Beckett or seek out one of those Beckett performances and thank me in the morning. Or at midnight, as the case may be, 2 a.m. That's probably the right time for some Samuel Beckett. Those thoughts you have at 2 a.m., the loneliness you feel, you're not alone. You have the works of Samuel Beckett to accompany you. And you have the podcast of Jack Wilson, for whatever that's worth. 
running around like Austin Powers. <laughs> My goodness, what kind of voice do I have that that is the mental image that our man, Average Joe, came up with? I am still enjoying that picture. We have some good episodes in the works, so please subscribe and tell all your friends. They will not want to miss Langston Hughes and Zora Neale Hurston, will they? Or seeing Dracula in a whole new light. Can you say that about Dracula? Seeing him in a whole new darkness. Does that work? Is that better? Maybe I will have to ask my expert guest, who will probably pause for five minutes, wondering how she signed up to be interviewed by this catastrophic moron. <laughs> That's why editing these things takes so long, people. Long pauses by the guests after wayward questions by yours truly, the catastrophic moron. <laughs> that should be in the show notes. A history of literature with the moronic catastrophe himself, your host, Jack Wilson. Well, in my defense, I'm the only one here. <laughs> There's no one else to ask. I can't go on. I'll go on, as our man Beckett might say. I can't go on. I'll go on. Actually, here's the quote. You must go on. I can't go on. I'll go on. I'm Jack Wilson. Musting and canting and ooling, I guess, but in the end, somehow, going on. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>